Yo, have you heard of LinkedIn Learning? If you haven't, LinkedIn Learning is an American massive open online course provider. It provides video courses taught by industry experts in a variety of subjects. Now, why am I sharing this? I'm sharing this because Living Corporate is in partnership with LinkedIn Learning to provide diversity, equity, and inclusion courses. Listen, if you're trying to be a better ally, you want to understand better diversity, equity, inclusion strategies, or you just want to learn how to be a better leader, you got to check out the courses on LinkedIn Learning. So check it out. You can do it one of two ways. You can click the link in the show notes or you go to LinkedIn Learning and you search Living Corporate again. Link in the show notes or go to LinkedIn Learning and search Living Corporate. I'll see you over there. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. Happy Black History Month. Now, look, I'm going to tell y'all straight up, you know, (laughs) Black History Month. You know, it's you're listening to this on a Tuesday on the 8th of the month of February. And some of y'all might be like, hey, yo, Zach, not in our year of Beyonce. Are you going to have a white woman on living corporate in Black History Month? But I am. I am. I am. And the reason why is because we talked a great deal about accountability, about reflection about learning about growth and as we talk about like the future of black and brown folks particularly in like working contexts white women are going to play a large factor in that right i think about my own journey you know i have had a white woman manager at some of my most critical career spots and stops. And frankly, I was harmed deeply every time. <laughs> and it's terrifying, frankly, um, how much power white women wield without really taking any accountability for it. Straight up. It's like scary, to be honest. And so anytime I'm able to have someone on who I believe is sincere, who has an authentic story and who's willing to um, be reflective and accountable in their positioning in all of this stuff. And by this stuff, I mean white supremacy, capitalism, the patriarchy. Like, I want to have those conversations, right? So, um, so I'm really excited about my conversation uh, with Kate Pramal, who is a lot of different things, right? She's a, a mentor. She's an educator. She's an author. We talk about her book. We talk about her own journey as a as a mother of a, a black girl, of a biracial girl, uh, and her the conversation she had and she continues to have uh, with her now adult daughter, Mariah Driver. So uh, shout out to Mariah. And I'm just really thankful that we were able to have this conversation. It kind of felt like, I don't know, it kind of felt like we like felt, felt very communal because I've already like connected with Mariah several, a couple times on the pod. And so I just appreciate our conversations every time. Um, respect and shout out to the team over there at Webflow. Um, and so anyway, I'm just excited about like the conversation y'all are going to hear today. Um, and look, before we go to that, I just like want to tap on a couple of other things briefly. So the first thing is, you know, there's a phrase and it's, Everybody want to go to heaven, but no, nobody want to die. Right. And what it means is everybody wants 
to participate in the reward, but no one wants to go through any type of struggle to get the reward. Right. And so, you know, as I think about Brian Flores and him being very public and airing out text messages, which, you know, like like that's typically frowned upon to air out somebody's text like screenshots. But I love it, of course, like I support it. But like he went there and really is taking a stand on a whole media tour with his lawyers airing it out right letting it go and you know it's sick because everyone's already framing what he's doing as a sacrifice because that's a tacit acceptance of the fact that we know he will not be getting another opportunity even though he's not wrong right and you know i've had some conversations with some some friends some respected colleagues who said you know something along the lines of look brian flores has f you money you know everybody's not in a position to do that and You know, we had a conversation, phenomenal conversation about the idea that, you know, it's not really about the money. The money is a nice cushion, but people make decisions all the time. Right. Martin Luther King didn't have no F.U. money. Malcolm X didn't have no F.U. money. Stokely Carmichael didn't have F.U. money. Right. Satya Shakur did not have F.U. money. Right. These people don't be having no They didn't have F.U. money. They just had courage and they had they had the courage of their convictions. And I really want us to like understand that for us to really get the systemic change we're looking for, we need folks with the courage of their convictions. And if you don't have that, I'm not going to shame you for that because literally virtues are virtues because they're rare. (laughs) Everyone is not courageous. Most people are cowards, right? Like that's just, that's a fact. (laughs) So, uh, I, do though hope that you can at the very least just be quiet on the sidelines while the real people are putting in those courageous works because they're building a world that you will benefit from right now yes Brian Flores is a millionaire um I'm not counting this man pocket I'm just saying like he's been making money for a while and like he's still he's still giving up his dream right like he not making bank like everybody else. If we trying to compare whatever we're trying to compare pay stubs. And so there's something to be said about that. And it's easy to kind of like be like, Oh, why didn't he do this? And why didn't do that? And I'm a challenge you. Like if you have something to say about Brian Flores, method, similar to kind of Kaepernick's methods, frankly, why don't you go stand up and advocate for yourself to your manager who is underpaying you and overworking you, right? Like, Why don't you be a mentor to that person who is on the periphery at their job, who is isolated and who, you know, isn't being treated fairly? Why don't you do something right? Go do something. Uh, But y'all just I'm excited. I'm excited about like what's happening in the NFL. And I'm hoping that it just impacts everybody who's out there. Um, looking to get in like really exclusive or hard to get places and looking to get their bread. Right? I'm never going to shame nobody. Black folks who are trying to take care of themselves and take care of their family. And so I hope that this helps us like, as a people, as a collective. Uh, shout out Kurt Flood also. The other thing I want to talk about quickly is the Spotify situation. So, you know, it's wild. The only quick observation I'll make is the Spotify CEO in his letter, his internal memo said, you know, look, we, uh, we disagree with his language, but we do not believe that silencing him is the right decision. Now, I want you to understand something. 
Joe Rogan is getting paid a hundred million dollars by Spotify. So he's not being silenced and he is beloved by a ton of people. So he's not being silenced. Not only that, but then like the next day after that little memo went out, a competitor to Spotify came out and offered him a hundred million dollars just to come over there. Hey, take a hundred million dollars. Like, yo, just come over here. Like you can say whatever racist, um, <laughs> illogical, uh, you know, like nonsensical stuff you want to say. Just you can come over here. I will pay you. And like, like the CEO was like, I'll give you a hundred million dollars over four years. y'all. So $25 million a year. Interestingly enough, the CEO going back to Spotify said, yo, so we not only gonna, you know, keep Joe Rogan and keep paying him his hundred million dollars. We're going to take a different hundred million dollars and we're going to create some type of fund to support black creatives. So in one instance, you got a hundred million dollars paying one racist white man. (laughs) Then on another instance, you got a hundred million dollars to support some uncounted number of black creators, right? So again, like everybody want to go to heaven. Don't nobody want to die. Like what does it look like for us to push back? Like that is insane to me, dog. Like that is a joke. That is an actual joke. I saw a tweet about it. Like, yo, like y'all are paying this one person, this one entity this much, but then you want to like break that brick up amongst this whole community of people. And you don't even see how insulting that is. Right. All this being said, like, I just want us to, like, open our eyes, especially during Black History Month, because I don't know, y'all. It's just as I just I don't know if it's just a combination of age and like me being a father now, maybe like me not having to, like, commute and be in office and kind of deal with, like, the politics and rigmarole of just like being in, like, majority white spaces and feeling like the need constantly look over my shoulder. Maybe it's because I'm no longer like in a hyper toxic racist environment uh, like I was, but I just had more and more time to like, just breathe and see. And I just see through a lot of this stuff, y'all. It's like, it's gross out here. And so it's important, um, you know, that we're just like really clear with like, okay, what it is that we want and what are we willing to do to get what we want? Right. Like we all have the right to be. We should be respected like as human beings. And some of these moves are just nasty. Um, All that being said, I'm excited for us to uh, check in and have this conversation with Kate Permal um, and talk about her book. But before we do that, we're going to tap in with Tristan. So see you in a minute. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, let's discuss three questions to ask your future manager in an interview. Many people see interviews as a one-sided conversation that your potential future employer leads, but interviews should be a two-way street. You should be screening and weeding out companies as much as they are screening and weeding out candidates. Lily Connings on Twitter wrote a thread on five questions she has or wish she had asked. In the thread, she says it's necessary that you give yourself full permission to interview your future managers. So let's talk about three questions she thinks you should ask your future manager to get some insight into what working for this person might be like. The first question is, when was the last time you promoted someone on your team? How did it happen? 
This question lets you understand the process of advancing in the company while working under this manager. You want to ensure that their answer is something you'd be willing to go through. The next question is, why did the last person in this role leave? Or how did this role become open? The reason why someone left a position can be very telling. As the saying goes, people leave bosses, not jobs. So worst case scenario is that they quit because of a toxic workplace. The best case is that they were promoted, which means this role may lead to similar opportunities for you. The last question is, when was the last time you supported a direct report's growth, even if it meant leaving your team or company? This question can throw some managers for a loop, but a supportive manager will care about your goals, not keeping you in your position. It's important that they know when it's time for you to move on. These are just a few questions that can help you understand more about the leader you're expected to work under to make a more informed decision throughout your job search. If you want to check out more of the questions that Lily posed, I'll put the link in the show notes. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Kate, welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm great, Zach. Thank you so much. Hey, listen, let me tell you something. You know, jokes, funny, but not, I don't know. You're one of the few uh, white women we actually have had on Living Corporate. So shout out and congratulations to you for that. Thank you. I have been noticing that as I've been following you. <laughs> A little intimidated, to be honest with you, but you know, I'm going to go with it. You join a great number. I mean, shout out to Dr. Caitlin Rosenthal. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, so uh, listen, I, I'd love to just start with like diversity, equity, inclusion, like your journey, right? Like there's plenty of folks that I talk to. And frankly, I, I get, I have a certain level of fatigue of just dealing and engaging white folks in this space. I know there's a certain level of almost kind of like arrogant paternalism that happens when you talk to people in this space or almost like, or even like opportunism. Um, they, they, they kind of like, it's like a, they throw a bunch of jargon at you, but they're not really talking about anything systemic or, or meaningful or real. So like, I'd love to just like understand more about like your own journey, your own experience, your own uh, perspective as we talk about like diversity and inclusion as a space. Sure. Well, mine started out for my own journey in gender diversity, right? I was uh, I graduated with a degree in software engineering. I became a software engineer in the late 1980s, and I've worked in technology for my most of my career. And I have been the only woman in the room for decades, pretty much. Um, and so there was an element of me that was equating that to other uh, onlys, right, and uh, and other marginalized groups. And um, my daughter is biracial. My her her father's black, um, and I had a real reckoning with her about two years ago before I started writing my book about the fact that I can't equate that journey to her journey. It's not the same. It is vastly different. And so we really started to dig into what those differences were and how, you know, it was a painful conversation for me and for her because as a white mother, I want to protect my black daughter from feeling the things that happened on a daily basis in the workplace. And it's, I realized that so much of my lack of awareness around that was because it was just so painful to think that my daughter was experiencing things that were really unthinkable for me. 
I find that so interesting. Like there are, there are folks, I won't say the names on this particular podcast episode, but like who also have like biracial children and they like kind of use them as um, props, right? You and I talked offline and I, I don't, you know, that's not, of course, that's not the sense I get from you, but I'm curious, like, what do you feel like? Why do you, do you feel like that conversation happened late? Right. Cause, cause your daughter has grown. Right. So like, yeah, it happened really what? late. It happened very late. We, we really didn't have that conversation growing up. And in fact, I left my ex-husband to be the one to educate them on how to navigate the world black. Right. And I really didn't, I did not appreciate it. It was when I read um, my grandmother's hands in the middle of the night when I was uh, on a on a yacht with my husband piloting, he's a yacht captain. It was middle of the night. I was on watch. I was actually listening to um, On Being where he was um, interviewed and he talked about white body supremacy. And I just lost it because I realized that as a white mother, there's an element of me that is terrifying and traumatizing for my daughter and my son. And uh, it was just this real moment of, of um, wow. Like I went through my whole life and raised these two kids without ever having that, and was married to a black man without ever having that sense and having that awareness and having that level of empathy and that, just that lens. And uh, yeah, it was pretty intense. And so when you, you know, because, and we use this word reckoning, like often, like just culturally, like in the last, since the murder of George Floyd, we use this word often. I'm curious, like, what what did that reckoning look like? And how was it unique or different from when Trump was initially, when he was elected? Like, can you talk to me a little bit more about like, just what that meant? Yeah, this is really deeply personal. What it meant for me, it was a personal reckoning. It was a reckon, recognition of my complete abdication and lack of responsibility and awareness for the dynamics that existed in my family and with my children and with my ex-husband. And it was a very deeply painful moment for me to have to look at my life as a mother and a wife in a biracial family and recognize how unaware I was. I'm excited to talk to you about your latest book um, in light of your own like reckoning and like self-realization and growth, continued growth as we all continue to grow. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to the title? Yes. Um, so composure is the state in which you are able to be in. It's that grace under pressure. It's that state in which you are able to be calm in the face of whatever madness is going on around you. And um, it is this, this state of resiliency as compared to reactivity. And the whole premise of the book is we can't control our environment. We can't. We can't control microaggressions. We can't control bias. Uh, there, there's really no control over that. So how do you navigate that in a way that's healthy and productive for you as an individual and a human being? Doesn't mean that you tolerate it. Doesn't mean that we don't try to change it. But are there ways, and that's what we explore in the book, to make it less traumatic and less painful and more, and to make you 
able to be more resilient in those really difficult moments. It's so interesting, um, Kate, like as I think about my own career, I think about, you know, like all the times I've had to just like kind of not react um, in that moment, right, where I've had to kind of pause or absorb and then reflect and then come back, right? Because I didn't have the same privileges to clap back, as it were. I'm curious, you know, when we talk about executive presence, because even that term, right, is loaded. And so can we talk a little bit about how you're defining executive presence in this particular work? Yeah, the word, it's interesting, because since we've published the book, I've reflected on executive presence. And I've thought I should have said the art of presence, right? Mm. And, that would have been really, that's really what I'm going after. Executive presence comes from my legacy as a business executive and coach and my realm of work, which is primarily business, right? So really what we observe in business is people who have a, an executive presence that is a powerful presence that is notable. It's sort of one of those things, you know it when you see it. Mm-hmm. So, but really, this is about presence, and to a great extent, the uh, the teachings in the book and the work that we do, it certainly permeates all aspects of life, and it creates greater presence wherever you would like it. You know, I'm I'm curious as to your perspective on the intersection of presence and like what it is we can and cannot control. Like, and I, your definition is, it rings very true to me. I'm curious, the interse- your intersection of presence and uh, self-advocacy, particularly as, a, as a, a, a professional from like a historically marginalized background, like how do those things marry or work together or coordinate, if at all? That's such a great question. And I think that's the most difficult aspect of what we're promoting. And the one that I've spent a lot of time talking to my daughter about. Mm. So we have a client who's a senior executive black women, woman at a, uh, she's a senior vice president at a financial services company. And she has been a fierce self-advocate her whole life because she's had to be right. And right. that's how she has achieved this incredible success. She's wildly successful. Um, and so And one of the challenges for her is this perception of this angry black woman trope in the in the corporate world, where when she self-advocates, when she asserts, she is um, tagged in that way or people experience her in that way. So the question becomes, how does she self-advocate and how does she ensure that her voice is heard when the environment around her is pushing it back against that. And what we ended up working with her on was um, being able to choose. What she realized was there are moments when she can put down her swords and she doesn't have to be as fierce. And there are other moments when she can't put down her swords and she needs to be that fierce and unapologetically fierce because it's the way that she, uh, she and only she can advocate for herself. But I think there was a breakthrough for her when she realized that she didn't always have to lead with the swords. It's like another client of ours said, I can let the general sit down and back and I can come out in a, little, in a different way. But that's very situational and it really, you know, so it's really about broadening the tools kit, giving a wider, broader range of tools mm. and then not not eliminating any tools, but allowing some more discernment about when to use them. Yeah, you know, that's I just that's just so 
real because I think about for me, right? Like I'm coming out of a, a you know, a season of having being in really hyper toxic work environments, right? And really, honestly, like this last job that I'm in right now, it's the first time in my 10 year career where I don't feel actively put upon, disrespected or marginalized or exploited. Like it's the first time. Right. And I'm 32. So um, and so like it's hard to like the nuance and balance of of the things you're speaking to and also not sending a message. We talked about this, right? Like not sending a message of shame because people are trying to figure out how they can survive right like this idea of like advocating for yourself is really your survival tool like there's so many people i've talked to in my career like who i've mentored or coached and they'll be like man i just want to learn how to like articulate and um advocate for myself in the ways that you do and really be clear on and network and build how you build relationships and and i tell them every time i say listen you know, I, I do these things not because I, I find some like innate joy in it or I'm some sort of like guru. These are the mechanisms by which uh, I, I leverage to survive. Right. Like these are the me- so that I can con- I can continue in my career, because if I was to just do what everyone else was to do, then I probably would be out of a job. Or I might not have a job. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I I'm excited to like I'm excited for folks to really dive into this book and and really experience um, experience some of the the thoughts that you've you've put together there. You know, if there were like three things that you would hope uh, that a reader, particularly one of historically marginalized black background, a black or brown person, black queer person, uh, first generation professional, first generation American, perhaps like we know what would those things be? Well, the first one is there's there's several things that we use, and I'm gonna um, we use. I have a series on, on my podcast that's at Composure thebook.com and it's on um, brain hacks. And we just did a brain hack on microaggressions. Now this was with a white female executive having microaggressions in very serious senior meetings with white men. So it's not the same, but there's still uh, some, some parallelisms. So the first step in anything in order to be more resourceful is to dissociate. And the way you do that is um, there's what I, what I, uh, well, the first step's really to gain some time, to buy yourself a little bit of time. So when something happens and it, and you re- find, feel yourself reacting to it, notice your body's like going on high alert. You get that tightness in your throat or in your chest, or maybe a pit in your stomach, whatever that is, your shoulders go up. The first thing to do is just, we, we have people take breaths and count backwards from three to one and ask a question. I don't care what the question is, any question. Uh, excuse me, could you please repeat that? I'm not heard, sure I heard you properly. Or whatever the question is, just to buy yourself a little bit of time to get your breathing back in, try to get back in your body, because usually flight or flight's going on, or you know, there's something going on where you're not fully present at that moment. The second thing is to actually... Um, while you're doing that, try to float out of yourself as if you're, I like to say, on a 7-Eleven surveillance camera looking down on the scene mm. and go, okay, what the heck is going on here? And that, <laughs> that third-party perspective, you can say to yourself, yeah, you just heard that. That's right. You did hear that. That was a microaggression. Okay, we're going to handle this. We, might, we can handle it in this moment. We can handle it in a later moment. Got your back. We're going to handle this, but just be present. Stay present in the meeting, you know, and really just to try to think about from the highest and best good, what is in the highest and best good in the moment? 
And usually it is maintaining dialogue in some way. Um, and then and then the third thing is really to separate from that, figure out how to deal with the situation and practice it. So next time that it happens, you'll be more resourceful. So what are the things you can say? What are the things you can do? If somebody's issuing a microaggression, you can say, you can pause. You can let it land around you. You can just be silent for a moment. You can ask for clarification. I'm sorry, could you please repeat that? I didn't hear what you said. You can uh, you can do nothing and you can handle this later, right? But the idea is we want to add more resourceful options for you than just internalizing it, shutting down, shoving it away, and having it just sit in your system. That's the worst thing uh, that I think happens for most people when they experience this. And and I I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, right, as as we wrap up is, you talked about the fact that, you know, you have a biracial daughter um, and that you had to come into your own record. Like what what advice or what things do you believe uh, that white women who are maybe in this space? What are some areas just kind of like I don't want to call them blind spots, but truly like spaces where they um, what, what advice would you give them in their own journey around this space or who maybe even proclaim themselves to be allies or DEI experts? Like right. what points, if any, of advice or feedback would you give them? Well, the first one is humility. I mean, you've got to be humbly, ad admit humbly that you're white and that you don't have this perspective. We, um, we have a BIPOC uh, coaching group that we, we've been running with, um, you know, 16 um, BIPOC professionals in it. And the first thing that my business partner, Lee and I, who are white, my other business partner is black, a black man. So we have that perspective and he contributes heavily to the book. But the first thing we say is, look, we are two white women and we recognize that. We recognize the advice we give you may or may not land for you or the things we talk about. So we invite you and we ask you to, um, to bring those up on behalf of yourself and others. And we want to create a safe environment to do that. So that's the first thing is just calling, calling out the elephant in the room. The second thing is that uh, I think one of the things that people do that's the most damaging in out of it, it, it has good intention is to try to talk someone out of the way they feel and that's what i did with my daughter that night of reckoning she was recounting the way that uh something that somebody said to her that was close to our family and the way it made her feel and i was trying to say that's not what they meant and she just looked at me and said mom you are completely invalidating my feelings and so the only thing I know to do is to say, I am so sorry that you felt that way. And I'm so sorry you had to experience that. And that's it. There's nothing else to do. There's no fixing a moment of microaggressions or bias or inappropriate comments. We can't fix it. We can only hear and bear witness to it and do what we can to try to educate people and arm them to be more sensitive and more aware. The third one is, I mean, there is this whole thing of education, but that goes without saying, right? I mean, it's really, it's mostly just about being humble and stating up front that I'm a white woman and I am doing my best to understand and advocate and I'm not going to get it right. And when I don't, let me know, how can I do better? Okay. This has been a great conversation. Um, I'm really appreciative of your time 
And also shout out to uh, Mariah Driver. Um, from Driver, my daughter. Yes. Yeah, you're, you you remind me of my mom and how you hit me up. <laughs> she was like, she's I'm so proud of her. And like, thank you for like, I was like, oh, this, it just, it, like me and my mom, we talk every day. But I was, I called her after you DM'd me. I was like, I'm gonna call my mom. I miss her. Oh, that's so beautiful. Um, the book is called Composure, The Art of Executive Presence. The author, Kate Permal and Lee Epting. Um, Kate, thank you so much. We consider you a friend of the show. Listen, you know, I don't know if you have any other, like, what your network looks like. If you have a bunch of uh, well-intentioned liberal white folks, please let me know about we live in corporate. You know what I'm saying? We take donations. I'm going to. Yes. Okay. Right. I, I keep sending your stuff to the board. I'm on a board of directors. Uh, I send it everywhere that I can. So yes, we want, we want the work. You, the work you do is amazing. And I love the way that you speak to those in corporates, but you also speak to individuals who are out there in the world trying to make it in their careers. And those are so important. So yeah, we spread this far and wide. Thank you, Kate. We'll talk to you soon. And I uh, look forward to having you back. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate the work you do. Thank you. Thank you. Peace. And we're back. Yo, shout out to Kate. Thank you so much for all of your work. Thank you for the very vulnerable and authentic conversation. I really want y'all to understand and hear that, like, if you're a white woman listening to Living Corporate, like you do have a role in this work. Like you do participate in like this space and you do benefit from your whiteness and you do benefit from you being a white woman. It is a different and unique experience. And, you know, I can say that we need you in this fight, in this work to practice and leverage your privilege on our behalf. Like help us out. Shout out to, uh, you know, saying shout out to the white women who are doing that work. I'm not going to name a bunch of people. Uh, Cause I don't want to embarrass them, but I do have like a couple people in my life who I'm just very thankful for. They be holding it down. And I did shout out Kate. I miss Ronnie already. So I'm gonna shout her out again and embarrass her. Cause that's my homie, but I, I got like two other people that, that they don't know. So I'm gonna just keep it to myself. But for real, like there's a handful of white women out here who are really like doing the thing. And like, I'm just really appreciative to y'all. So shout out to y'all and uh, shout out to my, um, my sister-in-law who bakes her macaroni and cheese and like off top, like if you bake your macaroni and cheese, like mad respect for real. Like you kind of, you on the you're on a positive trajectory for allyship. Um, and if you don't bake your macaroni and cheese, like holla at me. I'm gonna tell you, explain to you why you gotta bake your macaroni and cheese, especially during Black History Month. You know what I mean? Um, last thing, yo. As we celebrate Black History Month, you know, organizations like you know, you if you lead an organization, I want you to listen to me real quick. All right, so like you know, as you you know, turn down. I don't know. No, turn it up. My bad. Cause you're listening to me probably in your car. You listen to me on your phone or whatever the case is. Look, I need you to celebrate black folks like it's Black History Month every month. All right. Like, don't just do it when it's cute because that's exploitative. Right. Like, don't just do it when it looks nice, but like actually promote black people, sponsor them. Right. Advocate for them. Make sure they get in the bag they've earned. Right. Help them. Give them advice, but also put them in a position to grow and succeed right like do more than like the window dressing and the performative stuff that you be doing typically during black history month all right pay your black speakers you know what i mean it's interesting like window dressing is cool because like window dressing is needed because window dressing is what attracts people to the building to the storefront but here's the thing if the window dressing is super dope and then i go inside and ain't nothing up in there okay Well, now, not only have you lost a customer, (laughs) 
but you have someone actively outside in the street talking about how trash your store is. Okay. Think about it. As my uh, old pastor used to say, you'll get that on the way home. All right. <laughs> um, look, this has been Zach. Um, that's all we got today. Again, shout out to the team. Thank you again to Kate Pramal. The book is Composure, the Art of Executive Presence. We're actually going to be doing a book giveaway. So if you email livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com, livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com with your name, your address, and where we can send the book, yo, we'll send you a book. All right, just like that. I ain't gonna make you do nothing. I ain't gonna make you jump through any hoops. You know what I mean? It's already a pan panorama. I, I just want to make sure that y'all get a chance to get the book right. So just email livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. All right, this is the general Gmail. I mean, you gotta be fancy. Livingcorporatepodcast gmail.com with your name, with your address, and we'll hook you up with a copy of Composure: The Art of Executive Presence. Till next time, y'all. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.